A reading from Isaiah 40, verse 31. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. I put that in there just to make you guys all happy with me. Uh, We made it through it. May that be part of your pregame ritual today. Today, we're continuing this series, talking about something that's uh, about as popular uh, as the Super Bowl. It grabs our attention, certainly, um, and that is uh, sexuality. This vice of lust, our need for intimacy. We've been doing this series about vices and virtues, and we've been working through the different lists of vices, and we're getting towards the end. This, in fact, will be the last time we preach on one of the vices. Um, We will do the final one in a little bit uh, through some online opportunities um, so that next week we can welcome Reverend Rochelle as we celebrate Black History Month. Um, But today we take on this last vice we'll be looking at in a sermon, the vice of lust. I know we may not talk about this one very much uh, in church. You maybe didn't talk about this very much with your family growing up. Um, My family was different. My family was very open. If I asked a question, my mom had this book. Let me tell you about this book. It was like some kind of medical textbook that she kept on the shelf. And if I would ask a question, she would bring out the book. (laughs) And it was terrifying. But I'm grateful because I felt like we could have honest, vital, open communication. So today we're going to talk about it, but, but rest assured, mostly what we're talking about today is intimacy. The desire that is within all of us to be known and to be seen. And we'll see that lust is simply just this cheap replacement for the intimacy that God has called us to have with God and with community. So as we talk about this today, uh, some disclaimers about me. Uh, Know that I am a married straight man, so my perspective is limited. So um, I've consulted lots of voices in preparation from this. In fact, I reached out to author and speaker Sheila Ray Gregory. Uh, She wrote an incredible book called The Great Sex Rescue, uh, and she was kind enough to agree to do a Zoom call with me. We recorded the whole conversation. It'll be available online uh, for you to see as well, but you'll see a clip from that today. She goes into a lot of detail that's really, really helpful, and I would encourage you to watch or listen to that on our podcast channel later this week. I also want you to know that I am a a child of the dawn of the internet age, so I know what it's like to be surrounded by and have access to all kinds of content. I know how painful this subject could be. I know the, the challenge of shame that often comes alongside talking about these sorts of things. So my goal is to faithfully seek a response to the challenge of the vice of lust by how we respond healthily to this root desire for our need for intimacy through the virtue of sexual wholeness. And and I want us to see today how Christ frees us from shame. And I pray that I do no harm. Today we will see that a Christian who puts on the virtue of sexual wholeness experiences true intimacy with Christ and intimacy with a community that frees us from shame, reminds us that we are seen and known, and makes us more fully able to see and know others. So, what 
can the Bible tell us about this sort of things? Well, there's all kinds of things the Scripture has to say, but I find it helpful to go to the very beginning. And so I want us to turn to Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to be using a translation of the book of Genesis that comes from the Old Testament scholar Robert Alter. Uh, I like this translation because he preserves some of the poetry and literary complexity of the original language, and and also, it gives a story that's very familiar, some, some new feeling to it by giving it some different language than perhaps you're familiar with. And so, we start with Genesis 3, verse 7. Sorry, Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God fashioned the human. Humus from the soil and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. And he became a living creature. Human from the humus. Uh, The word Adam is simply a pun on the Hebrew word for dirt, Adama. We, we, We think maybe this translation could be like earthling. God has created this first human. And then looks look what happens in verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the human to be alone. I shall make him a sustainer beside him. And the Lord God fashioned from the soil each beast of the field and each fowl of the heavens and brought each to the human to see what he would call it. And whatever the human called a living creature, that was its name. And the human called names to all the cattle and all the fowl of the heavens and all the beasts of the field. But for this human, no sustainer beside him was found. So the Lord cast a deep sleep on the human and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed over the flesh where it had been. And the Lord built that rib that he had taken from the human into a woman and brought it to the human. And the human said, this one at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, this one shall be called woman, for from man she was taken. Therefore does a man leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, they become one flesh. And the two of them were naked, the human and his woman, and they were not ashamed. So here in this creation story, we find God creating a human from the soil. And God notices something about this human, that it is not good for humanity to be alone. And so God says, I must find you a sustainer. Sometimes that's translated Helper, but, but helper carries maybe a sense of a subordinate. That's not what this word means. It means a partner, a battle mate, an active sustainer. So I love this translation that says sustainer. There's no sense of hierarchy. Even when you read, it says uh, the human and his woman. A few later verses later, it'll say the woman and her man. In fact, the word rib is an architectural term. We could translate it as a side. The human is divided. So they may not be alone. Now some might say that this man and woman here in this first relationship gives us some kind of biblical prescription for exactly how relationships are supposed to look. Biblical writers didn't seem to follow that. They're much less interested here in gender or those sorts of things, but in the nature of the relationship. What we have is this problem of the human being alone. And what we find happens 
is there's this mutuality and this connection between the two created. And between the two of them, there is no shame. I don't know if we notice that enough when we read this creation account. They were not ashamed. Naked and unashamed. This lack of shame is the key to the whole story. The key of seeing how we are made to be in the world. And so the word here, naked, is not just about clothes. It is about that we could be bare, honest, exposed vulnerable, and unafraid. Naked and unashamed is how we're meant to be in our relationships, vulnerable and unafraid, exposed and secure. Obviously, I don't mean literally naked all the time, except when it is, right? With a spouse or caring for an infant or caring for an elderly parent. This is a passage that's all about intimacy. It's not good for us to be alone. God says, so God makes a sustainer. Together they are sustained by their relationship with each other. They are naked and unashamed. They are naked and unashamed before each other and before God. But you know the story, right? They disobey God. There's a whole apple thing. Suddenly shame enters into the story. And then, in this time, actually, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, it says this, The eyes of the two were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the evening breeze. And the human and his woman hid from the Lord. All of a sudden, they're ashamed. They feel like they must hide. They believe this lie. I'm not worthy enough, worthy of love. I will be abandoned. I cannot have real intimacy because I don't want to be seen. I don't want people to know who I really am. I don't want to be rejected, so let me hide. Sound familiar? We are made to be known and to know. We have a desire within us for intimacy that someone would love us and know us enough to be there when we need it, to love us despite whatever, to feel like we don't have to hide. God has given us this desire. The problem is, in our culture, we have taken this desire and we have made it too narrow. We have defined intimacy simply as sex, and uh, we've made our definition too small. I want to share with you this clip from this interview with Sheila. Uh, you'll notice her awesome Canadian accent. If we could go ahead and roll that. Those in the, the intimate parts of relationships, that's what we're designed for. And intimacy is when we are able to be vulnerable with another person, that we're able to let them see who we really are. And don't all of us long to be truly seen and yet also truly accepted? Isn't that the, one of the primary longings that God has given us? And in Jesus, we find that, that true, that true acceptance. And he knows who we really are. But he also created us to live in community in that. And our churches should thrive in that kind of community. But it cannot happen without a degree of vulnerability mm -hmm. and safe vulnerability. I don't mean faux vulnerability, where you're made to confess all your sins on command, or you know you're told um, 
uh, that that you need to enter into un, unhealthy power dynamics. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a reciprocal vulnerability, a mutuality where we're able to let people in and we're able to let people see our weaknesses. And so we need to get back to this idea of what it means to be known, um, to be able to let myself be known, but also to really care about other people and really get to know them too. And that can exist in all kinds of different relationships, but it's something we're not always very good at. Right, right. No, I love what she said there about Christ giving us this gift to true intimacy, to know that we are free from shame, that we are known and loved exactly as we are. So we've established that we have within us this need for intimacy. And, and the problem, the vice emerges when we, when we respond to that need in an unhealthy way. See, an unhealthy response to our need for intimacy can be lust. A spiritual thinker, Dallas Willard, said, intimacy is a spiritual hunger of the human soul. We cannot escape it. That's always been true. It remains true today. But we now keep hammering the sex button in hope that a little intimacy might finally come out. Love values another person. Lust degrades another as an object. This vision that we've been given of true intimacy is not some quick, easy response, but instead a mutual relationship. In fact, even when God created, God knew that God was opening God's self up to rejection and abandonment. And people did just that. Deep relationships and love always risk vulnerability, and true intimacy is only possible when we are known despite the risks. So in the passage we've been looking at again and again in Colossians chapter 3, we read this in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. And then down to verse 9. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've stripped off the old self and its practices and have clothed yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. Paul says, put to death. Remove the source of life for sexual immorality. For this desire to respond to our need to intimacy with a quick fix. So what is sexual immorality? I want to give you a definition that, that I think is helpful. This is, this is my definition of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity, physical, verbal, mental, that comes from a posture, posture concerned with fulfilling my own needs and desires over the value and needs of others. And it operates with an avoidance of the responsibility of commitment to and the humanity of another person. I think we might have a slide with that on it. It operates with an avoidance of the responsibility to, responsibility of and the commitment to the humanity of the other person. Again and again in our Colossians passage, we've seen this phrase, stop lying to each other. You could also translate it as stop lying to yourselves. There's a problem within all of us. Within our culture, we have a need for intimacy and we don't often know how to respond to it. Even within the church, the statistics about sexual addiction and infidelity, they look often inside, inside Christian populations the same as they do outside. 
And until we admit that, we won't be able to deal with it. We won't be able to treat it as dead to starve sexual immorality in our lives. We must be honest that we need intimacy and we must create spaces where we can express it in a healthy way. We don't have to define intimacy with sex all the time, but instead in relationships where we can be known and know each other. Our culture is desperate for this. We're desperate for it. A recent study in 2021 from the Harvard Graduate School of Education suggests that 36% of Americans, including 61% of young adults, 51% of mothers with young children, say they feel serious loneliness. We need intimacy. So the problem in our world today is not that there's lustfulness all around. It's that, it's that we haven't cared for each other. We haven't felt like we've had a space to be present and known. We haven't felt like we could be unashamed together. The answer to this need for intimacy, it is in relationships that happen in all kinds of ways. We've made the definition too narrow. See, Paul the Apostle was single. Does that mean he was unfulfilled as a person? No way. Jesus, fully God and fully man, was single. Was, was Jesus somehow lacking in intimacy? No way. Intimacy is available in and with God and with community. And this is the message for all of us. Married, single, widowed, lonely, you are seen and loved. Regardless. Rebecca DeYoung in her book, Gillering Vices, says, Lust strips sexual pleasure-seeking down to individual gratification apart from a love relationship to a person. Without a holistic view of sexuality and purposes, lustful pleasure downgrades all the goodness of sex to the lowest denominator, its physical dimension. When we lust, we want nothing to do with sharing love or giving life if the thought even occurs to us. Lust says, sexual pleasure is my pleasure. Another writer says, the best way to avoid objectifying people is to see them as humans. <laughs> and as I was reflecting on this intimacy message, I thought about a time uh, when I was in high school, when I was kind of most obsessed with pursuing girls, and sometimes in unhealthy ways. And I realized it was bizarre. As I was thinking about this time in my life, it occurred to me, that it overlapped another thing that was happening in my life perfectly. It was during the same year that my dad was deployed for a year to the war in Iraq. He was away. And there was a fear within me. A fear that I might be abandoned or lose my dad. That was rooted in my own shame. I was desperate for connection, for intimacy, to know and be known. The young says, when I make leisure my goal, I decide where, how, when to get it. And my life then resolves, revolves around my needs and wants that I can satisfy at my own demand. And I disown my need for God's love and love for others. Surrender, vulnerability, intimacy, dependence are the hard roads we resist taking at all costs. We are made for intimacy. So how do we cultivate a healthy response to this need within us, regardless of where we are in our lives, what stage of life that we're in? 
we put on sexual wholeness. What, what does that, that mean? It means we understand that our need for intimacy can happen in community and in relationships. It means we develop a healthy view of ourselves and others, of our bodies and other people. It means we believe what Jesus says about us. It means we say no to shame and yes to the God who cares for us. Sheila, who we saw earlier, said, defeating lust is not about limiting someone's encounter uh, with other people. It is about empowering people to treat people around them as whole people, children of Christ. The key to defeating lust is not to avoid looking at people, it's to actually see them. Philippians 2, 4 says it like this, don't merely look out for your own personal interests, look for the interests of others. We counter this unhealthy response to intimacy by building community and connection. Build friendships. Connect in the church. I was at a pastor's kind of conference when I was young. I was in seminary. And at the table for breakfast with a bunch of young seminary students, um, it was all, almost all of us there were men, um, except for this one woman, a pastor in her 60s. And we were talking about the metaphor that we find in Scripture of Christ and the church is kind of like a marriage. And we were talking about how that, that, that metaphor has been confusing for us. Um, and this woman, she said, you knuckleheads, <laughs> you don't get it. She was right. She said, let me tell you why this metaphor makes so much sense to me. She says, as somebody who's been married a really long, long time, let me tell you there are days when I look in the mirror and I don't like what I see, when I feel shame that I know shouldn't be there, when my body doesn't do the things it used to do and I'm mad about it. And then to be with somebody who knows every wrinkle and scar, every insecurity and pain that I've walked through, and to know that I'm loved, that's intimacy. The marriage that she described was simply doing what Scripture tells us that, that Christian marriages can do. It points to a deeper reality, a metaphor for Christ in the church, that through the power of Christ we are known and seen, regardless of your life station, your singleness, your marriage, Intimacy is for you. Your age, intimacy is for you. In community, with connection, you can be known and fully loved. You can be vulnerable before God. God is not ashamed of you. God knows every wrinkle and every scar, every insecurity and every failure, every pain that you've walked through, and you are loved. So when Jesus says you don't have to be ashamed, Believe him. How do we respond to this need for intimacy when Jesus says you don't have to be ashamed? Believe him. Romans 8, 1 through 2 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So build community. Build friendships. Build connection in your church. Look out for each other. 
Love one another. Create a space where you can be honest about what you're dealing with. And where you can receive others who are honest about what they're dealing with. Not with judgment, but with love. DeYoung says this, the best advice for resisting lust is not to get a good internet filter. Oh, you should do that too. But to build good friendships. If we have fully human relationships in which we learn to give and receive love in appropriate and satisfying ways, we will be less inclined to wander off looking for sham substitutes and quick fixes. Our world is lonely. The church has something to give. I saw a Twitter tra- thread this week. A woman was riding a long uh, train ride, and I, wanna, I just want to read it to you. This is from Emily Ben. She said, I've had one of those train journeys you're never going to forget. The guy next to us started talking. He says he wants to say something, and we're free to ignore him after he finishes. So naturally, people sitting around stare awkwardly at the floor, uh, pretending not to hear. But it turns out this guy has just been visiting his dying grandmother. He's been there for three days. He loves her, and he's just had to say goodbye and leave his family there. He's now on hour six of his journey home, and no one on the train has spoken to him, and he just wants to talk. So, of course, five of us say, we're here. We want to chat. So he tells us about his family, his career, his journey, about rugby and football, (laughs) It's clear that he immediately starts to feel better just being able to talk to other people. And he also wants to ask about us. So it turns out we've got one medical student, a consultant doctor, a motor expert. Uh, We cheer on this National Health Service staff that we have. It's 10.15 at night, and these two have been working all hours for us. Coincidences abound. People uh, go on vacation in the same places. They know the same restaurants, you name it. It's a big city, but it's a small world. So the guy gets off at his stop. We tell him to get a cab home. And then the doctor gets off with him. Uh, The rest of us chat. It was 45 minutes where we could have been staring at our phones, but instead we chatted and laughed and helped him. The moral of this is you never know what someone's going through, and it's always worth asking if someone's okay. And if you thought that was all the story, wait, because she notices then that a phone is left on the seat. She says, it's the doctor's. Ah, it's late. She doesn't know how to contact us, but thanks to what the doctor told me, I'm able to find her online. I email her. We'll call the hospital tomorrow. I will go deliver it to her personally. It's the least we can do for how much she's done for us. So the real moral of the story, aside from you can really stalk someone on the internet with very limited information, is if somebody needs a talk, has had a tough time, It can always pay off to chat. And you never know. You may also help with lost property. So I brought a picture of the update she posted after that. I've just been to the hospital to deliver Dr. Giever's her phone in person. Sometimes it shows you the best course of action is to have a chat if someone's feeling low. You may help in all sorts of ways. The story maybe did something within you, right? See, because we're made to desire this kind of intimacy, this kind of connection and caring. So my question for us this morning is, will we, the people of God, secure in who we are in Christ, free from shame, be the kind of people who risk being vulnerable, who know they don't have to hide, who will strip off sexual immorality and put on 
a sexual wholeness where we view ourselves like God views us as beloved, valuable, unashamed. And will we, the Baptist Church of Westchester, be a place of connection and welcome that can outpace even the friendliest of train cars? Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to reflect on these vices and virtues. I thank you for the root desires within all of us that you have given us that are healthy and good. God, may we not give in to lies that say we can respond to them in unhealthy ways. But may we, by the power of your Spirit, because we have said yes to following you and are secure in our relationship with you and your love for us, Put on right responses. And be people of love and intimacy who know, who are known, who see and are seen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Church of Westchester podcast. If you have questions, want to connect, or are looking for ways that you can support God's work at this church, visit bcwc.org. And as you go, Through whatever your day may throw at you, I want to share this blessing with you. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness, protect you in the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go and be the church.